Some parts of this episode contain descriptions of violence off the field, but those moments are connected to what happened on the field. People who remember relief pitcher Donnie Moore often remember him for two reasons. First, for Moore's unfortunate role in Game 5 of the 1986 American League playoffs, a game that contained, according to sports commentator Al Michaels, quote, the most dramatic hour of sports I've ever seen, end quote. The second thing people remember about Donnie Moore is what happened three years later, when Moore shot his wife three times before turning the gun on himself at the age of 35. 35. For most people, life is just getting started. Donnie Moore, at 35, was ancient, grizzled, hopeless, and alone. Except not really, and that's part of the tragedy. The people who remember these two things about Donnie Moore often turn them into an equation, as in A equals B, or unfortunate role in game five equals attempted homicide and successful suicide. But Donnie Moore's story, like Bill Buckner's, is much more than the echo it became. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. When I decided to include Bill Buckner and Donnie Moore in this episode, I had no idea the two men were so intertwined. They were simply two men who'd been defined by their mistakes on the field and villainized by media and fans. But the more I read about Donnie Moore, the more I kept seeing Bill Buckner. The two men were so similar, even down to their height and weight. When you see pictures of the men, you might think the white mustache Buckner taller, lankier, and Donnie Moore, black, also with a mustache, a bit shorter, a bit stockier. Except in BaseballReference.com, the two men have the exact same height, six feet, and the exact same weight, 185 pounds. It was like the two men set out on different paths that invariably snaked back toward each other. And then they set off again, only to run into each other again. It was as if the universe was trying to tell them something, but one or both were not listening. Despite his error in the 1986 World Series, and despite the way the fans and media treated him, Bill Buckner did eventually get a standing ovation from the Red Sox crowd. It happened in 2008, 22 years later, when Buckner returned to Fenway Park to throw out the first pitch and celebrate the team's 2007 championship. But long before then, Buckner had mostly come to terms with what happened in Game 6. He'd moved on. Donnie Moore, 
whose baseball incident occurred just 13 days before Buckner's famous error, could not move on. And three years later, in 1989, Moore killed himself. He'd played 13 years in the major leagues. He'd secured million-dollar contracts. He had a wife and children and a mansion in Anaheim, California, with a duck pond stocked with catfish in case Donnie had the urge to walk up with his rod and reel and drop a line. So what happened? In 1986, Donnie Moore found himself in the same series on the same ball field as Bill Buckner. The two men had been teammates in Chicago, but now they stood on opposite sides of the field with more pitching relief for the California Angels in the American League Championship. The winner would face the New York Mets in the World Series, and here, now, in Game 5, the Angels were up three games to one, and in the ninth inning, they were leading five to four. With two outs and one man on, Donnie Moore was called in from the bullpen. Remember, commentator Al Michaels said the last part of this game was, quote, the most dramatic hour of sports I've ever seen, end quote. This from a man who called the World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, and the 1980 Olympic hockey game between the United States and Russia. Michaels also said that considering the last few innings, this game would make the list for the 20 greatest baseball games of all time. One of the most dramatic hours of sports, and unfortunately Donnie Moore came out on the losing end of that drama. I'm not going to make the argument that Donnie Moore's breakdown and suicide were completely caused by what happened in Game 5 of the American League Championship, but there is a connection about athletes and denial. According to writer Michael McKnight, who wrote an incredible article on Donnie Moore for Sports Illustrated, Moore had two loves in his life, baseball and his wife, Tanya. And ultimately, he couldn't come to terms with losing either. But the problem was that he never realized, until the very end, that they were never his to own in the first place. Tanya Moore said of their relationship, quote, he told me I was like one of his nice pairs of shoes, end quote. Donnie Moore was controlling. He had a bad temper, and later, in 1989, when Tanya learned that Moore was coming home after a final failed attempt to return to the big leagues, she was terrified. She gathered as much as she could and fled from their home as soon as possible. But earlier, 20 years earlier, Donnie and Tanya were inseparable, and Tanya, who grew up with Donnie and was his on-and-off girlfriend from the age of 11, was the only person who really knew his past. There's not much information on Donnie Moore's childhood because that's the way he wanted it. For instance, Donnie had a brother who was older by 10 days and from a different mother. His brother's name was Ronnie, and at the age of 10, Ronnie was killed in a car accident. Later, Donnie would name his second son Ronnie, after his deceased brother. But Donnie's teammates, some who'd played with him for years, never knew he had a brother. Donnie's daughter, Demetria, 
only learned of the existence of an uncle decades after her father died. All Donnie Moore ever wanted was to become a big league pitcher. In his teens, Donnie transferred to an all-white school because the baseball coach was the winningest in Texas history. Moore also pitched in nine straight high school playoff games. Not, wrote Michael McKnight, because he wanted to win, but because he wanted to make sure big league scouts saw him play. When Tanya had their first child at the age of 17, Donnie Moore gave his daughter to his parents for six years while he and Tanya hit the road. In 1973, Moore was signed by the Chicago Cubs and began to travel the minor league circuit with Tanya by his side. And when there was no one to train with, Tanya would pick up a catcher's mitt and catch her husband's major league fastballs. That is, until 1974, when Moore learned the split-finger fastball, otherwise known as the forkball, which was too unpredictable for Tanya, who said, quote, I didn't want any part of that, and he knew it, end quote. He worked the pitch to perfection, but Moore and other pitchers, like Bruce Sutton and Hideo Nomo, were making a deal with the devil when they committed to the forkball because while the pitch devastated hitters, it came with a terrible cost to the pitcher. To throw the pitch, you jam the baseball between your index and middle finger and throw the ball as hard as you can. You also loosen your wrist, which contributes to the damage. From writer Harrison Golden, quote, the very pitching style that made his fastball cover the strike zone and then tumble into the catcher's mitt caused irreversible damage to his back, elbow, shoulder, arm, and fingers. End quote. Moore experienced pain early on, but nothing was going to stop his major league rise. This was the trend, to push on, to ignore any warning signs, externally or internally. In 1985, Donnie Moore had the best season of his life as a relief pitcher, with an ERA of 1.92 in 65 games. It was the only year Moore was selected to the All-Star game. But by 1985, his arm and body were already torn apart. By 1986, in Game 5 of the American League playoffs, Moore was experiencing chronic migraines. He had constant arm and shoulder pain, and back pain from a bone spur in his spine. Donnie Moore had finally made it, and he feared that if he went on the disabled list, he'd slip from the top. When he entered the game that night in the ninth, with the Angels leading 5-4, to four, one out away from the World Series, Moore had two cortisone shots in his system. Doctors point out the dangers of too many cortisone shots in weakening the cartilage and ligaments, possibly rupturing a tendon, and the general problem of masking the pain and making things worse. Doctors advise no more than three or four shots in a year, and Donnie Moore had two that night when he stepped on the mound to face Dave Henderson. After the game, reliever Gary Lucas said, quote, I'm the guy who should probably take the brunt of everything that happened afterward because I could have kept Donnie out of the game, end quote. 
But it's important to recognize with Moore, just like with Bill Buckner, what happened before. Only a few minutes earlier, for instance, Angels pitcher Mike Witt stood on the mound in the ninth with the score 5-2. to two. Witt had pitched the entire game for the Angels, giving up two runs and throwing only nine pitches the previous inning. If this were 2023, there's no doubt he would have been replaced in the ninth or earlier for a closer. But it was 1986, and Witt had earned his right to finish the game. Except he couldn't. None other than Bill Buckner started off the ninth with a leadoff single for the Red Sox. According to McKnight, as Donnie Moore and Gary Lucas were told to start warming up, quote, policemen filed into the bullpen in advance of the celebration that stood two outs away once Witt struck out Jim Rice, end quote. The next batter was power hitter Don Baylor, who worked the count to three balls and two strikes before reaching for a ball low and away and smashing the pitch over the left field wall for a two-run home run. Suddenly, the score was 5-4, to four, Angels still leading by one. Witt induced a pop-out from Dwight Evans, so there were now two outs, but the next batter was catcher Rich Gedman, who'd already managed three hits against Witt. So the manager called in not Donnie Moore, but Gary Lucas, who'd struck out Gedman the night before with the forkball Donnie Moore had taught him. But Lucas was over-pumped, and said of that moment, quote, Something just left me as far as what he had taught me and what I had done the night before. I tried to throw a better forkball than had ever been invented, and it got away from me. End quote. Gary Lucas had not hit a batter in four years, and in all three of his future encounters with Gedman, he would strike the man out. But tonight, Lucas's forkball was wild, and it hit Gedman in the hand, just missing his head. One pitch, and Lucas was done, and Donnie Moore was called in from the bullpen to face Dave Henderson. Since coming over from Seattle in August, Henderson was batting just 189, and had struck out the previous at-bat. He was only playing because Tony Armas was injured. For Donnie Moore, because of a litany of his own injuries, aches, and pains, by the end of 1986, his accuracy and velocity had declined. But now he was like his old self, firing two fastballs that Henderson had no chance of touching. I was in trouble. I was just trying to survive, Henderson said of the at-bat. And from Red Sox Dave Stapleton, quote, The way he looked after those first two swings, I didn't think we had a chance, end quote. With the count two and two, and Henderson fouling off fastballs to stay alive, Donnie Moore threw his bread and butter, his forkball, which hung up in the strike zone just a little bit. Dave Henderson desperately swiped at the ball and made contact. From Al Michaels, quote, To left field and deep and downing goes back and it's gone. Unbelievable. End quote. I'm still amazed by it, Michael said of Henderson's home run 20 years later. The home run put the Red Sox up 6-5, to five, 
but if this were the end, it wouldn't have qualified for the most dramatic hour of sports ever. In the bottom of the ninth, the Angels tied the game 6-6, and Red Sox reliever Steve Shag Crawford was called in. Crawford quickly gave up a single to Dick Schofield and intentionally walked Brian Downing, which loaded the bases with only one out. A slow dribbler, a decent bunt, a deep ground ball, or a fly hit somewhere deep in the outfield. Any one of these outcomes would have resulted in an out, but also the Angels scoring the winning run. Red Sox reliever Steve Crawford said of the moment, quote, If there was a toilet on the mound, I would have used it. End quote. But the batter, Doug DeCensis, managed only a fly ball too shallow to score the runner on third. And the next batter, Bobby Gritch, lined the ball back to Crawford for the third out. Donnie Moore held it together until the 11th. And if Angels manager Gene Mach could have turned to someone else, he would have. But he'd exhausted the bullpen over the last two nights. Everything was riding on Donnie Moore. When the end came, it was anticlimactic. Don Baylor scored on a sacrifice fly in the top of the 11th, and the Angels went down in the bottom of the 11th. The final out, a fly ball caught in foul territory. According to Michael McKnight, the Red Sox, quote, leapt around like they'd won the World Series, even though the Angels still led the series 3-2, end quote. Donnie Moore's longtime agent said, quote, Ever since he gave up the home run to Dave Henderson, he was never himself again. He blamed himself for the Angels not going to the World Series. He constantly talked about the Henderson home run. End quote. But Michael McKnight wrote, quote, Donnie could have lived with giving up the home run to Henderson. That's what Buckner and Donnie's other friends and family say. The home run itself would have been fine. What he couldn't handle was the loneliness, which, during his 21 home appearances after the Henderson home run, took on the sound of booing. End quote. In 1987, the Angels' general manager publicly chided Moore, saying, quote, Instead of whining about his ribcage, he should have been out there earning his money. What do we pay him a million dollars for? End quote. This gave the fans reason to boo more every single time he made the long walk from the bullpen to the mound. From a Washington Post article, quote, Moore's wife said in 1987, Moore would often come home after pitching at Anaheim Stadium and burst into tears. End quote. Moore's agent urged Moore to see a therapist, but Moore refused and said, quote, I'll get over it. End quote. Years later, Tanya and Donnie's daughter, Demetria, sat down for an interview. Tanya was asked about Donnie seeing a therapist, and she said, quote, He would have died first. End quote. This was soon followed by a comment from Demetria, who said, quote, Well, that's what happened, isn't it? Donnie Moore ignored the pain pulsing, stabbing throughout his body. 
He ignored the pleas from the people who cared about him, and he ignored himself. Instead, he shut down and he drank. And one of the few people he actually opened up to was Bill Buckner. The two would go on hunting trips together and talk. But even then, it wasn't enough. By 1989, Moore's world had imploded for himself and the people around him. If Tanya wanted to go shopping or visit a salon, she had to ask Donnie first. She had to wear her skirts and dresses a certain length or there'd be punishment. By the time Moore returned to his home after being released by the Royals, Tanya was gone, staying with a friend. That summer, Tanya and Donnie would take turns with their two boys, and their 17-year-old daughter, Demetria, would play the role of the chauffeur, shuttling her brothers from one house to the other. Moore became a hermit, hiding out in his house and drinking Jack Daniels. And even though he'd made millions of dollars, he was now having money problems. At one point, he reached out to friend and former teammate Reggie Jackson for some money. But the sum was large enough that Jackson had to say no. On July 18, 1989, with his boys in the swimming pool and daughter Dimitri out with a friend, Donnie put on a sweet voice and coaxed Tanya to come over and talk about selling the house. A few minutes after she arrived, a fight broke out. Tanya withdrew and called her daughter to pick her up, while Donnie disappeared. Demetria and her friend pulled up to the house and walked into the garage. That's when Demetria heard the first shot, soon followed by her mother running towards her, bleeding. Four more shots followed, three of the five finding their target. According to McKnight, duck hunting saved Tanya's life. Quote, He only used streamlined ammunition, bullets that were designed to go straight through the birds without disturbing anything around the wound. End quote. Demetria and her friend grabbed Tanya and began to drive away, intent on rushing Tanya to the hospital. That's when they heard the sixth and final shot. Did Donnie Moore die because of what happened in a baseball game in 1986? Yes and no. But to outright say one or the other misses the complexity and the many chances we have throughout our lives to not only ask for help from the bottom of the well, but to look up and grab the lifelines that have already been extended. That's the end of the show. If you enjoyed this show and my other episodes, please leave a review on iTunes or one of the other podcasting hosts. I'd love to hear what you have to say, so feel free to leave a comment and future episode suggestions at midnightlibraryofbaseball.com or on iTunes. Or you can email me at midnightlibraryofbaseball at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram at midnightlibraryofbaseball. The music is a long way by Sergi Pavkin at Pixbay. Good night.